It was a lot of work, but what I realized, you know, after writing the article and coming on the show last time was that there were a lot of people that were very interested in also understanding how I had kind of gone through the steps up until that point. And so that's pretty much what the past year has been about, just figuring out how to take these practices and take what I learned and the mistakes that I made and bring that back through a lot of the communities that I've been working with to not just help others thrive in the profession, but do so with a little bit less pain and a little bit more joy along the way. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Amy Rahovchik. Amy's a sales enabled expert and host of her own podcast titled Revenue Real Hotline. And today is another one of the conversations we're having during this month about mental health and sales. And today, Amy shares the story of her journey with mental health and what happened to her is something that could happen to any of us. There's a story of resilience and recovery and ultimately well-being. We dig into how stresses of the past year are not in the past and why sellers need to be vigilant in monitoring their own mental health, even as it appears like the worst part of the pandemic is over. We also dive into the role sales management plays in creating sales cultures. Well, look, there's no escaping stress in sales. There's stress is always going to be present. However, we discuss steps managers can take to build sales cultures that avoid the toxic environments that unnecessarily amplify the stress that everyone feels in sales. So we're going to get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Amy, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it with Amy. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Andy. Pleasure to be here as usual. Pleasure as always to speak with you. And it's, gosh, it's been nine months since we last had you on the show. Yes. Um, and so this is a conversation as part of our our <laughs> series of conversations about uh, Mental Health Awareness Month uh, here in May. And yeah, I thought maybe we'd start just by sort of going back a little bit, talking a little bit about your story, because we connected, because I had read an article that you'd written about your mental health journey, and I was so impressed by your your courage in being open about that, that yeah, we had you on the show last year. But maybe for people that didn't hear that episode, because uh, we have a lot of new listeners all the time, sort of refresh people, sort of what happened? Yeah, so I've spent 10 years as an individual contributor and, uh, you know, loved every second of it. I love the profession. I think it's the greatest profession on the planet. However, I, you know, when I look back on how I was taught to, I guess, handle the swings of the profession, the ups and the downs, I... I, what, I, miss <laughs> I think it was books, really. It was the books yeah. and like reading. It, well, I, I gave up music for a year, so I spent a lot of time with books while driving to sales calls while I was learning. But anyway, I, I misinterpreted something along the way that it, it, I didn't, instead of processing the negative feelings, the negative, the stress, the, mm -hmm. the um, intensity, really, I, I just started to ice them away. And the challenge with that 
well, one at the time, like I thought I was doing the right thing. And as someone that was working to, you know, make smart choices with habits and, and work through discomfort as we all do while we're learning this profession, I got very good at just not interacting with my feelings. And mm -hmm. like the, you know, all of us or most of us raised in this country or in the United States, we, we aren't, we aren't raised to talk about how we're feeling and often Stoic. sometimes, yeah, often sometimes it's, it's not, um, it's not very welcome anyway. So I, you know, after 10 years, I just, I, I stopped feeling everything, Andy, if I am being completely frank. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my emotions revolted and had no part of it. And so I had to, it was all at the same time as Me Too was coming out. And so after 10 years of, of selling while being a woman and the Trump campaign, and I had just moved to San Francisco, which was, is a it's a, a interesting city um, as it relates to gender. But anyway, so I, yeah, I, I did not do well with everything coming at me at the same time. And at that moment, I just, I had no tools to be able to process my own feelings. And yes, it was a, it was a train wreck really is how I would go about describing it. I mean, it was a, I mean, do you categorize it as depression or anxiety or both? I, or? I mean, at the time it was, it was, I, like PTSD, right? I'd started to remember things that had happened um, over the course of, of 10 years. And I did not, um, I, I didn't handle the awareness very well at the time. And so it was just a heightened sense of awfulness, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And as you start to I don't want to say spiral, but like you crash, you really, you crash. And I crashed in a big way and I realized that I needed help. I needed professional help. And so I took some time off, but the challenge, and you know, signed myself into a treatment plan, inpatient. And the challenge though, when you go into the mental health care system is the over-reliance really on medication. Right. And so for what happened with me after that is I went through a period of three and a half years where I was essentially medicated, a, a lithium-esque type of, of mm -hmm. pill that while you certainly kind of level out, but you lose a part of yourself. And, you know, part of my journey, it was really learning how to kind of let go of that, all those lost years, I guess you could say. Right. And not only that, but realizing that there's a better way and that I could do it without the medication. And so that's exactly um, what I did at the beginning of last year. So January, threw the pills away and went to work. Um, doing all the hard work of investing in both, you know, mind, body, and soul. So this mm -hmm. was getting back on track physically. This was, I switched to cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. I, you know, started journaling, but really applied some of the lessons that I had learned while learning how to sell, which is experiment with different tactics and figure out what, what worked, um, as it related to my, my mental health. And so that's what, that's what I did. And when you and I met, that was, you know, six, seven months of really just intense, intense work to, again, not, I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with pills and there's certainly like a time and a place for it. But in sure. my experience, they're over prescribed and there's not enough talk about how to do um, the hard work of, you know, working on your mentals the right way, uh, you know, and so... I'm, that's why I'm, I'm delighted to be on the show kind of to talk about 
Right. That. Well, so yeah, I mean, we're obviously in this, you know, still in the pandemic. It's been this hugely stressful period for everybody, right? I right. mean, certainly people fear for their personal safety, the safety of their family. Uh, job security, oftentimes tremendous shifts in the way, certainly in the sales profession, the way the job has been conducted. Right. It's been hard for a lot of people to to cope. I mean, so for you, what was have been sort of the keys to enable you to yeah operate the level you want, just personally and professionally. Yeah, I think there were there were a bunch of things. The first was again switching to cognitive behavior therapy, which would it's the equivalent of like sports psychology, really. Mm-hmm. So this is well, a lot of people will think of therapy and we think of, you know, sitting in a chair and talking about your childhood and like, you know, trying to convince the therapist that, you know, you did not in fact want to sleep with your father, you know, like and so but that's not how it all how it is. And so when I realized that not all um not all therapy uh, practices are the same, you know, mm-hmm. so that was a big thing. I randomly, randomly picked up a Ryan Holiday book and got very into um, stoicism and practice, mm. like actually practicing stoicism. So this is really learning how to interpret events differently, right? An event is just an event and how we choose to respond to, to it, um, that it makes all the difference. And so when I was exposed to both of these things, Mm -hmm. then it became a matter of doing the work. And I want to keep saying that, like, do period, the period, work, Work. period. And it was, you know, Andy, when I look back or think back on the past year, it was every month we were working on almost like a different virtue, starting with trust, Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, most people, when they think of trust, they think of it as in one of two different ways. Um, it's the trust that we have in the other person. So an interpersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. Then there's, of course, the the trust that we have in ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Which was a big part and kind of why I brought this up. And then it's, of course, the trust in the collective. Right. The group, right. which is not as not nearly spoken about enough. But anyway, so learning how to trust myself, learning how to forgive myself, learning how to um be patient and like let go of any particular outcome. And so a gratitude was another one that I really struggled with at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But so the work was both the work of learning how to stay present in, in the present moment mm-hmm. and really just sit with the way that you're feeling and, and start to investigate with a journal and a pen and paper like, where are these feelings come from? Why do, why do I feel this way? Like, why am I having this almost guttural reaction? And, and it's when you can stay present in these feelings long enough that you can actually start to explore them. I mean, it's, it's frankly, it's mind blowing how insightful, um, these experiences Mm -hmm. can be. And then, then it's a matter of like, once you understand your patterns, it becomes about, you know, kind of getting in front of them and, you know, looking for, um, you know, the trigger events that, that kind of send you off into a a particular direction. And so, Again, it's 
it's like building blocks, right? You get one piece of it down, you learn how to stay present and you learn how to like memorize what, like I think I memorized all 20 cognitive distortions. So when our brain starts to go crazy with these ideas and these worries, like each of these thought patterns actually has a name. And when you know what that name is, it, it takes some of the power mm-hmm. away. And so, yeah, it was... It was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. But what I realized, you know, after writing the article and, and coming on the show last time was that there were a lot of people that would were very interested in also understanding how I had kind of gone through the steps up until that point. And so that's pretty much what the past year has been about, just figuring out how to take these practices and take mm-hmm. what I learned and the mistakes that I made and bring that back through through a lot of the communities that, that I've been working with to, you know, not just help others thrive in the profession, but do so with a little bit less pain and a little bit more <laughs> joy along the way. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that always raises the issue. Right? When we talk about these issues of, of anxiety and depression and connections to stress, you know, which you know, is ever-present in sales, the problem is it's ever present in sales, right? Is is because this is a, a performance based profession, just like a an athlete has to go out and perform. Is it's always the question is well, how do you how do you create an environment, a, a culture, where I don't want to say it's there's no stress because there's always going to be some stress, right? There's always going to be some pressure to perform, but there's degrees, right? I mean, we certainly mm-hmm. are all familiar with sort of the you know, the Glengarry Gun Ross uh, on one extreme, you know, always be closing. But the fact is, in a lot of modern sales organizations, they're not very far off that. I mean, you yeah. have you have sales, frontline sales managers or sales bosses, as I like to call them, mm-hmm. to distinguish them from sales leaders, um, who, you know, that's that's all they know. It's not right. it's not like they're bad people, but you know they haven't been given the tools to right. to create cultures, different cultures um, that perhaps approach the the issue differently. So how do we how do we go about that? It's hard. I I think the first step is intention, right? Just understanding and awareness that like what's going on right now, the way that we're conducting the business of sales is there's a it's a we have a problem, mm. and we I I think that. This is still like before we have that level of awareness, right? And acceptance and like being able to speak it out loud, like there's no chance of anything better happening. So that's step one. Right. Step two, I think, is to familiarize yourself with um, some of the modern research around productivity, where like productivity and performance truly comes from. And one, like just as one example, sure. like autonomy is a massive part of that. Yeah. And so when you take you know, when when I compare the research, right, when I compare, like, the, the studies on happiness, right, I think Sean Archer does a great job of, uh, he's got a hysterical TED talk, and he talks about, uh, you know, a 35% uptick in sales performance based on happiness. But anyway, as it relates to productivity and autonomy, 
And then I look at how we treat most SDRs and, and we are managing what they do down to the day and task. And so not only is there no autonomy, but there's no creativity. There's no ability to th think critically. And the job, just the way that it's structured, becomes a massive grind. And so I think the work then becomes, and again, for a sale. They churn quickly. And, they churn, right? We're promising them that we're going to promote them or, you know, we're pushing back on like the leads that they are passing along and they're whereby impacting their ability to control their own income. I mean, right. it just, and not only that here, we're giving like the youngest, most inexperienced members on the team, the hardest part of this job. Right. And it's, uh, you know, which is just, I mean, crazy to me right off the bat um, on top of it, we're not teaching them the fundamentals of actually doing the job, but, um, um, that said, well, without... in, addition, in addition to which, sorry to interrupt, but in addition to which mm -hmm. is also the buyers don't want to talk to generally <laughs> the least experienced person on your team. Not if they don't have an understanding of how to interact with buyers and yeah. all that they've been taught about are the features of the product and the story of the startup and, you know, like how to, you know, check off like Bant items, uh, you know, without actually having a human connection. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to talk to um, a, a, a person that was not truly interested in, in me as the human being, customer, buyer with my unique, you know, special snowflake problems, you know, so it's like a chicken or the egg type problem as far as I'm concerned. However, nobody's happy is the point. And right. it's, so what we're proposing and what we're talking about, like, especially as it relates to coming out of COVID, which is that we don't have any, there's no, there's no answers yet. There's not like a, a, a magic wand that we can wave or look at. And so part of, you know, us as a profession approaching the next 12 months or as we enter into like whatever the next phase of, of the business of sales looks like, you know, there's going to be a lot of conversations that need to happen to explore, like, how do we strike the balance between psychological safety and, you know, driving a performance profession. So is this maybe doing a better job of screening for certain characteristics upon hiring? Yeah, maybe we're looking at a broader pool of candidates that are not, you know, that didn't go to the same schools or, you know, working through the same networks. Maybe we're looking at, you know, prison reform programs. Maybe we're looking at an inspireship that is helping people shift into the profession. Maybe we're pulling from teachers in like the education field. And so with each of these new individuals that we bring into the fold, Right, we're going to have different different types of conversations and start to see different types of successes. And what I love about I, I don't I don't I think we were talking about it before, but RepView mm -hmm. and Ryan Walsh is not only what they're doing now to inject like transparency into like what's what are the characteristics that are important to salespeople upon you know picking which job and which company to work mm. for? But more importantly, they're starting to source out our our bright spots, right? So it's not just about um, you know demonizing these organizations that are have really poor scores. It's about really digging into the organizations that are doing a great job and understanding like what is happening here that, you know, that this particular organization ha and these true leaders, sales mm -hmm. leaders, not not bosses, um, have figured out so that it could then be socialized 
um, you know, among the rest of us. And so while we do have a tremendous amount of work to do, um, particularly as it relates to striking a balance between, you know, maintaining a, a, a team that performs as well right. as having psychological and creating psychological safety. Right. Um, I'm very hopeful about not just the progress, but I, I believe that the pace of change is going to start to expedite now that there's a lot more transparency again on those that are doing uh, as like have, have established some wins thus far. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're more optimistic about that than I am, <laughs> but, um, I have to be Andy. I'm a, I'm a female. We have to convey hope all the time. And so, you well, know, here I'm, we go. <laughs> I am the sort of eternal optimist, but I, I think that, um, you know, the pressures don't go away that, that some of the managers feel. And so we have this, this issue in sales. I think it's true in prof all professions in general, but we're just dealing with sales here today is that, we assume that people come into roles equipped to do certain things. And, and so, you know, I would say, well, gosh, maybe we should change how we onboard. And maybe the first two weeks of onboarding, we're just going to talk about mental resilience, right? The habits you need. We're going to talk about how to help you just be a better human being, right? A stronger, more resilient human being, because we know we're going to be putting you into the cauldron and, and instead of saying, look, the way we do now is we treat it as a baptism by fire and we weed people out, right? I mean, it was very explicit. My first job out of school a couple hundred years ago is that, you know, these big organizations, and I worked for a big, second largest computer company in the world at that time, Burroughs, IBM did the same thing. All these companies did the same thing. They, hired, they overhired, right? They hired way more people than they needed with the explicit intent that they're going to weed out a certain large fraction of them because they're just not going to make it. And it's, we're still sort of doing the same thing oh, yeah. today with the way we hire. And to your point, is certainly we could do a better job looking for, and I'm not a big advocate of a lot of the personality assessment tests that are done. I, mean, I think they could be more focused on these particular aspects of it. Uh, because I don't believe there's a, a sales gene, uh, some nope. people believe. Um, no. Nope. I mean, I, I certainly don't have it. I mean, I took one of those <laughs> tests a couple of years ago, and and the CEO of the company called me afterwards aghast because they thought I'd been fooling around and, and had gamed it and had purposely done bad. And I said, no, I, I took it seriously. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, yeah, you scored, the, you scored, you were, you scored yeah. in the bottom 25 percentile. It's like... Oh, guess I shouldn't be in sales. Don't tell, yeah. don't tell anybody now. Um, oh my gosh, it's so true. No, you're right. And when I use that, when I said about sourcing the right types of humans that are, I'm more thinking about like joy of learning, love of learning. And sure. we hear it phrased as like curiosity. And so like one of the ways that, um, especially during onboarding, especially during like the baptism by fire that you mentioned, that is the, you know, the norm, sadly, mm -hmm. is that, when, when we're working with an individual or a human being that wants to grow, that wants to get better, that wants to um, learn new things, and it's not just seen as like something that happens to you while you're onboarding, right? There's a certain 
character trait, like that person tends to experience more joy along the way because they, they're able to tap into the process of feeling themselves grow and evolve. But back to your point about like, what do we do differently? I think it's very difficult to have a program that focuses on growing human beings when all we're doing is focusing on like a performance coaching versus the true development coaching. Right. And when, when we're trying to coach someone into like getting an outcome of some kind, like that's in many ways an impediment to trust because, you know, people can feel that they can feel the intention as not being, well, it's not, it's not transparent. Yeah. That's, it's one of the, the, the cornerstones of trust is your motivations have to be transparent and when people feel that it's not. Yeah. The, and yeah. the other person has to feel that, that you have their best interest at heart. And that's very difficult to do when you don't have their best interest at heart. And so if you're looking at them like a cog, if you're looking at them at, or a team of people or here, even better, if you're looking at Huh, your team's performance and only 42% of the team is hitting quota. Like if there's not a thought in your brain that says like, wow, I wonder what that's doing to the psyche of my team on a consistent basis. Like that, that's a problem. But part of, I, I think you nailed it, Andy, when you said that, you know, a lot of our sales bosses right now have been raised in this environment. And what that means is that letting go of your past experiences, particularly the ones that brought you success, mm -hmm. even if that success is on a, like, let's say you averaged a 20% win rate over the course of your career. And, but like, if if twenty percent felt great to you, that's wonderful. But like down the street, like there's teams averaging eighty percent, right? So it's right. relative. However, that said, regardless of what that that relativeness is for for you, the individual, letting go of your past experiences. Um, in favor for the unknown, in favor for something different, especially when there's accountability on you know generating a certain amount of revenue. That takes guts. That sure. takes courage too. And I, you know, we're going to need to see more of that happening in order to kind of, you know, scale above the quagmire that has been the last 20 years of, of the profession in, in I, I think our shared opinion, but well, it, it goes back 50, 60, 70, 80 years. I mean, it's, it's probably it's, even further back. And you know what, Andy, too? Like, if I'm going to say it, like, I think gender is a big part of it, not just gender, but like diversity of thinking mm -hmm. and experiences. Sure. When we look at the sales bosses on the sales floors right now, and it's still 85% white men, like, and the most of the, the survey respondents, when they talk about effort applied to inject more diversity and everybody's satisfied with the current effort level, like that's a part of the problem. And so they're all, these are all symptoms of the same issue in my mind, which is in many ways uh, a sense of entitlement around a certain way of doing things without an ability or a desire to you know, receive questions or to sure. ask questions, you know? And so, well, it, it comes to your point earlier, it comes from people saying, well, I survived this. So if I could survive it. And why, it worked for why, me. Why, look it, at me. Yeah. Look, it worked for me. Why can't you? And that's been the attitude for forever. Right. And sure. When I got started, I said hundreds of years ago, I could have benefited from, yeah, you know, some sort of instruction and, and guidance and coaching about 
you know, the, the sum total of it was, well, don't take rejection personally. Yeah, yeah. Right? Don't take it yeah. personally. That's not personal. Yeah. That is yeah. the sum total of instruction we give people about how to deal with the feelings of this sort of constant rejection. And while there's some you know, base wisdom and don't, it's not personal, it's not helpful. And why don't we acknowledge that, that we have an opportunity to help these people that we're investing all this money into, to hire them and, and onboard them? Why don't we just take a few extra days and or during the course of the onboarding, integrate into our, our learning ways to help people deal with this? And it's not just this. I mean, it's also you know, sort of the lack of, of human skills in general, right? And this is certainly one of the things that, that bedevils a lot of people is, is we're taking people with a lot, not almost no work experience and we're throwing them on the phones and saying, go make your calls. Have at it, yeah. And they, they don't talk on the phone. They haven't talked on the phone their entire lives. And we expect them to be able to act like a normal human being uh, on the phone when... They haven't been trained, and we haven't been given the skills. So I just feel like we, we missed this whole segment. And this then translates into stress, which can lead to depression, anxiety, or, or you know, other, the above. other issues is I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to operate in this environment, and I'm not being given the guidance other than here's my script to follow. But that's, that's just at one level. We've got these all these other levels. It's just the human level that – yeah, we need to train. I've said this on the show for We need to train the person before we train the seller. And it's it's funny. I'm smiling because I'm reminded when when I was getting my process improvement certification, and so part of understanding or we were taught to suss out root causes, right, and confirm for root cause. And what was shared with me while I was going through the my certification process was that. At the end of the day, root cause problems really fall into one of two categories. And it's either a communication issue, which is annoying in and of itself because like, what the hell does that even mean? But really, mm-hmm. and the other one is skill development. And so when you were sharing about like, why aren't we helping new sellers to understand the implications of the job and not just understand the implications, but what to do about it. It's there's a skill development on our on our sales bosses side of things, like a massive one, massive. And there is zero chance, zero chance of being able to understand or to empower your team with these principles without first understanding them yourself. And so but then you get into that, you know, rabbit hole of. And that requires acknowledging that, you know, we all have emotions and that, you know, they impact us all evenly. And so we, what is it like to go to therapy and start to develop these skills? And so these, the lack of skills Mm -hmm. at the sales boss's level will always impede um, our ability to execute on something like this at scale. However, you know, well, starting having the conversations about it is, is certainly helpful. And I would say to your listeners, Andy, like for anybody that's interested, I would I would look at CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, and better help or something very easy. It doesn't have to be painful. Sure. But there is no better way to learn how to do something than by doing it and right. doing it with the intent to teach other people how to do it. And I think I, one thing, Andy, that we didn't mention that I think is critical with with this topic is this idea of 
having us separate us as sellers, being able to disassociate our, our happiness from an outcome, right? So which for sellers will never happen, right? If you hit your month, you hit your quota, what you got a weekend to celebrate it and enjoy, and then guess what? It starts all flipping mm-hmm. over again. And so without, but in the West, in Western societies, this is a very common thing, right? When I get married, I'll be happy. When I buy the house, right. when I get this job, when, 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 but that's just not how it works. And so part of being able to, again, to feel less pressure about our outcomes is to let go of the outcome and to focus on, on the process, focus on the journey and look for, you know, opportunities to find, find gratitude and joy along the way. And I think in my experience, that is so much simpler to do in this profession because there's so much to learn at every stage along the way. But here's the hard part. Here's the hard part. Okay. The hard part is, is that we train sellers in methodologies that are fundamentally geared towards persuading someone to do something. So the methodologies are all geared toward an outcome as opposed to a process. And so when you've got, you know, and the irony is too, is, as research has shown, is that there's a universal resistance among every human being in the world to being persuaded. Right, So naturally, we spend billions of dollars a year trying to train sellers how to persuade people to do things. <laughs> the one thing they all hate to do, which is be persuaded. But, but you know, sales is set up you know, the way we train sellers. Well, so is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on that one yeah. a little bit, Andy, because when I think of methodology, so I'm, I'm maybe commingling like methodology and process, sales process. There are certain principles, right? Principles first, first principles with process and starting with number one, which is that all value flows at the pull of the client. Mm-hmm. And the problem, and like, you know, or <laughs> even though we don't talk about this often, sales process, lead flow processes, these fall under principles of process. And mm-hmm. the problem here is not the training per se, it's not the methodologies per se, but we have we have reversed the sales process to, to be about us as the company. It's about how quickly sure. we want these deals closed. It's a, and so in order for us to be able to engage Okay, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not the methodology that it's the problem. It's or it's not the way that we're training on the methodology. It's the methodology itself, which is based on a backwards principle that is trying to pull your buyers to a certain outcome, which is not the way that it works. And that, sure. I, I mean, it's Andy. When I was selling, like I, I was meticulous about being very specific with my messaging. I, I was, I liked speaking, right? So that mm-hmm. was one of my favorite ways to source opportunities. So my, my opportunities literally like walked up to me after I stepped off stage and shook sure. my hand and said, can I email you? And right. so like that type of pull, like, but I was still raised in the same sales world, but I, I, I don't want to say like I figured it out like most of us do, but for those of us that really understand how to, influence and work with buyers like we've had to let go of the way that we were trained or the way that it's it's taught in many ways on our sales floors and that's my you know point. just kind of do it anyway well that's my point i think the people who have and i wrote about this this week on linkedin is the people who who have careers 
learn how to do that. You know, they are the ones who, who grab autonomy and to act more independently and who, uh, as I say, break the rules. Right, <laughs> and they and I'm laughing at Dale Dupree's episode because he was like that when he says the the sales bosses when you do that as an IC, I, I to quote to quote Dale they lose their minds and in yeah. in that that it's it's I think that's a almost the 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 nugget in here is how do we create environments that allow the ICs to have more ability to experiment and, but also like scale up and, and out those wins without feeling intimidated as the sales boss? Well, right. We, we put, you know, we put frontline sales managers and above into sort of impossible positions increasingly, certainly in the tech spaces because the expectations are so high and unrealistic oftentimes that, you know, these things that you think should be done, you know, it's they have an element of fear if someone's not uh, following the methodology of the process precisely because that adds, in their mind, an element of unpredictability to it. And mm. the inability to treat thing? people individually. And because, yeah, <laughs> I've written about process and past and had, you know, senior VPs of, CROs, you know, comments say, you know, process exists for the sellers. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Process mm-hmm. does not exist for the sellers. Mm-hmm. Process exists for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, but this inability to, to, or an unwillingness, let's say, is to treat or enable sellers to act autonomous, more autonomously and more individual. It's not that there's not a process that, you know, people generally follow. They do, right? I mean, sales is fundamentally a process. It's not there aren't metrics that people have. Since time immemorial in sales, everybody's had their their metrics. Everybody knows their they should know their number, right? Their conversion rates and so on. It's it's they, they, yeah, they they so don't. This, this is, but they should, right? I mean, you should know. Well, this is what we should be teaching them. This is I we actually I went deep on this and Andy. I was doing the math the other day. Like I think I've. Over my career, like I love to field training. Like I, right. I think I've field trained over two hundred reps, mm-hmm. just to. And so, when I think back on that time, like when we don't teach about like the fundamentals of selling anymore, we we don't teach about like one of my favorite things to make sure new reps learn about and understand is is Pareto's principle, the eighty twenty rule, that you're going to get eighty percent of your results from twenty percent of your tactics. And so really your job is to, especially early on, is to figure out what your twenty percent or tactics are mm-hmm. so that you can will both stop doing what's not working as well and triple and quadruple down on what is working as well. Right. And it was something that I ended up talking about on like a five on Friday episode that I was a part of, which was so fun. But like there had been like six or seven reps, Andy, that like heard me share that piece just about the 80-20 rule Pareto's principle and physically message me and say, oh my God, like this is the exact thing I'm going to work on. Like I had never heard it like that. And it just, it, I, I was in that moment, both very excited to be able to bring value, but at the same time, it's like, what are we teaching these new reps? Like, and, and the idea of being able to, like, I don't want to say it like, but I've got a, one of the podcast episodes that's about to launch. It's an episode called day Kong cracks the talent code. And he and I go deep into like, 
it was a young a young seller that I had mentored last year, and we went into like our process about you know teaching the fundamentals, but through like an onboarding process. So where you're building on a set of actions week over week, and it's just it's. It's very, it's so simple to do, but it's just so far from what is currently being done and what's currently being Mm -hmm. talked about that, you know, really step one, in my opinion, is to like, as a sales boss is to stop, stop ourselves and say, what, okay, like what we're doing, I don't want to say what it's not working, but there, there is such more there, the potential to do sure. so much better is there. And and you do have to let go of the fear of not being able to predict that, you know, 20% win rate that's going to come in if you make everybody do everything exactly like this. 20% win rate, yeah. Yeah. Well, but let's, let's break it down, though. So we assume that people that are coming into sales roles, whether it's as an SDR, an AE, or, you know, sales rep in any, any industry outside tech and so on, we assume that they're getting into sales because they have some level of people skills, that they know how to make a, a connection with another human being, that they know how to build rapport. Why do we assume that? And why do we assume that people who can't, don't have that knowledge initially shouldn't be in sales? Um, I don't know, Andy. Like, I think about all the people, all the, the, I mean, all the stuff. We, the, the things we use as qualification for that is, yeah, there was one of the most effective salespeople I've known in my career was pathologically shy. I mean, not just introverted. He was just pathologically shy, but great with customers on the phone. But you would never have interviewed him. You would never have spent it, you, not as you, but in general, right? He wouldn't have passed muster. But I don't know. I, I think that that's a part of when, when, I like, there's no other nice way to say it, but white men, sales managers, sales bosses have a dynamics on their team that right. reflects 80% white men on the team and, and, and 20% everything else. Right. And so when it's, when it's shifted, right, then you get more of a, you know, 50, 50 breakdown. And so I don't tend to put a lot of stock in the, the decision-making criteria that perpetuates these sure. demographics. Well, absolutely. But it's still, we still have the same issue. It's like, whether it's regardless who comes in, is we just, we make assumptions about capabilities that, that don't exist. And so we make this investment in people. And my point is, with just a, a small marginal investment, uh, we could prepare people better for the role. And this is not a one-time thing. You'd want to keep training people on this, you know, we think, we say curiosity. I think it's one of the core skills, one of the four core skills in you have is curiosity. Well, we can train people. You, you can learn curiosity. You can develop what this one professor calls your CQ, your curiosity quotient. And research is showing that actually, you know, curiosity is more predictive of success than intelligence. So... But the problem, Andy, I know we're coming to the end here, but the problem is we do not have... a curiosity-inducing sales floors. <laughs> well, we don't... We don't... That, that is not something that we reward. Like, when... We assume, look, we just assume people know how to do it, right? And you're right. We don't, we don't encourage... When because, we bring those questions internally... Right. Right? I know I, you have... I love your story because it gives me hope that, like, selling... I never... Selling in... When I switched to sales enablement and, like, to... That... 
it was like I like lost all of my sales skills that like served me well for a decade. Like it just, I was not received very well internally. Like there was not a lot of room for questions. There was not a lot of room for experiments. There was not a lot of room for any kind of divergence from, you know, whatever it was that. And so, and I think that that whenever I say that out loud, I always, it's always good for a couple like here, here's from, you know, people, friends really, and you know, mom weighing and who that's just a joke, obviously, but, (laughs) um, but that's, it's very hard to create a culture of curiosity, and not just create, but maintain a culture of curiosity when we do not um, support curious minds on our own team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we think we have all the answers, right? I mean, it's one of the problems with with uh, too much experience is you think you have all the answers. And if, yeah, if you don't keep the open mind and, and continue to be curious. But I just threw that as an example of just you know, one thing that's that can be trained. Uh, mental resilience can be trained. I mean, I, I, I just, I think, and I, I, well, it was a year ago, so I was binge watching the show Billions. Um, and, you know, the, the, the most important character sort of in the show is the psychiatrist, staff psychiatrist, right? Wendy. Um, what would it cost a sales organization to have a similar resource? Obviously, if you're a startup, you can't afford full time, but, if you've got 50 to 100 sellers, you don't think you could afford to have a full-time, like a sport psychologist, but a performance psychologist on staff to be able to... I, it's it's crazy. It, and then we it, think about the money that it's costing them to not have it. Yeah, absolutely. it's like Bill Belichick. How how hard do you think he had to be convinced to bring on like a full-time sports psychologist to keep not the mental... Perf- not at all. But the challenge, Andy, is we're not going to do that when we think our the, the human beings on our teams are cogs. In a industrial wheel, you know, and so, or that they're replaceable or that the onus of responsibility to teach and train and to develop and cultivate talent is not on us. And so this is where I, I'm so thankful for like the reputes out there that are, and, uh, you know, a crazy event like COVID that is expediting, I don't want to say the pace of change, but it's like all the cracks right, that have taken to your 60, 70, 80 years to build on sales floors, right, have literally split apart at the seams, right, over the course of the past 12 months. And there there is no ambiguity anymore about whether or not there's a big-ass crack over there. Like, every, we can all see it, and this means that really we can start to talk about it. And I, and I know that we have a lot of work to do. I know it. And I know that the harm that our profession is doing, like we burn through human beings, like, and it's disgusting in many ways. And we're talking about under air quotes, underperformers and top performers alike. However, there are more and more and more voices that are not just starting to talk about the problems, but we're, we're starting to see some successes with, with some of the solutions that are working. Mm-hmm. And that is worth celebrating. And sure. Yeah, I didn't mean to be a pessimist about that. I mean, some oh, people are, no, doing some great, are doing some great things. We're trying to highlight some of these through this program. Absolutely, it's, Andy. It's so essential, but it's just it's time, to, time to get out of the caveman area. It's and well past dis- time. Dis- dispense with this machismo around sales. And, you know, people aren't 
failed human beings, if if they have struggles and issues with mental health or addiction, we're just we're just human, right? And we're all just human, including the buyers, including right. the employees, and it's. I, you know, it's one of the reasons why I've got the tagline like team human on LinkedIn, because it, it's like a line in the sand. You are either a part of team human at this point, or we're still treating people a certain way. But like, look at what happened with Basecamp last week. Did you see with all the employees? Yeah. What'd you think? I thought it was awesome. I mean, I, do you want to share with the listeners? Do they know what we're talking about? Well, or, but well, I was so impressed that a third of the company... Okay, so everyone, the, the founders of Basecamp, um, there were some conversations... Right, I assume you're talking about the response of the employees was awesome, not yes. what the founders did. Yes. That, uh, yeah, well, it, the response of the employees to to a new policy that was rolled out that it was where, where no one's allowed to talk about social issues um, in wor- inside work platforms. And it had to do with a, a, a list um, of names about the clients. Anyway, a third of the company, all the employees just had turned in their resignation based on the new policy. And it was, I think... I've never seen anything like that where like the collective all at one time said, you know what, if this is how it's going to be, we're not allowed to talk about like treating people in a certain way, then this is not the right place for us anymore. And Andy, I look at the stats about 24% of the people um, are thinking about, you know, not returning to their job if they're not given the opportunity to work like a hybrid of remote, Mm -hmm. like you just see people starting to walk and talk with their actions um, because this year has been so intense to your point and, you know, evolution and history being what it is, you either change Mm -hmm. with the times or you eventually die out. And I, I'm very hopeful about you know, what's, what's coming next. And I, you will not hear me utter the word new normal because the old normal sales bosses was not working for most people. And so like none of this like new normal bullshit, what we're doing and what we're all going to come to together is something that's going to work better. I think for most of us, I like to use the phrase, it's the next normal, uh, next normal, because there'll always be another normal after that. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I think that that we're seeing the beginning, and I think this is really needed in sales, the beginning of sort of a way of redefining the relationship between sellers and employers, uh, that the path is unknown where it's going to go, um, but perhaps you know it leads to better policies on compensation, you know, quota, other things that, that desperately need to be fixed. Um, not just for the humanity side of things, but for the company as well, because yeah, nothing, good not, not being well served by it. And certainly hybrid work arrangements is, is one of those, right? If, if nothing else, you know, the, the pandemic proved that, you know, people can work it's remotely, possible. people can work yeah. remotely and be trusted to get the work done. I think there are a lot of new dynamics that are going to pop up that people are anticipating. And some researchers have found this already that, that when you go into hybrid arrangements that, uh, you know, does everybody feel included? You know, that you could, uh, we talked about this before is, is we yeah, start recording so funny is, these, yeah. is, yeah, somebody's working remote and there's a meeting in the office and they weren't included. Uh, or maybe they even were able to zoom into the meeting, 
But when the meeting ended, the three people that were in the office had an extended conversation about it. They decided things that the person that was on Zoom call wasn't privy to. And then you've got this dynamic that, again, some researchers have showed up or has shown up in some research already is, is that those people in the office don't try, even though they were working remotely themselves, they no longer trust that the people who are still remote are doing their jobs. Um, and the bosses, ironically, in the research, the, it's not the bosses that have the trust issues, it's the peers. So we're going to create whole new levels of, of or sources of stress, let's say, but Hopefully it's this better. is where psycho psychological safety, I think, is a great place to start learning because right. uh, the idea of inclusion, right, is a mm -hmm. is a big part of that. Sure. And so I, I really love, um, or I, I just started it, but it, Daniel Coyle, who is the guy that wrote the Talent Code, has one on on the Culture Code, and I it's changing the way that I thought about psychological safety and how it relates to sales floors. And it's interesting what, what you're sharing, but. But yeah, you're spot on, Andy, that there's going to be a lot of new challenges now. But this is where I think all of us, every single one of us, myself included, being able to let go of our rightness, being able to let go of what we think that we know, what being able to let go of those you know, assumptions that we know what's best for other people or we know we've seen a problem and, and our default brain just jumps to a solution in a nanosecond. Letting go of all of those things and engaging in these conversations is the only shot we stand at, you know, making it, it better for one another, not just, you know, from a business perspective, but like who wants to, who wouldn't want to work on a team of high performers that is right. accomplishing great things? Like that's the dream. That's the dream. Yeah. Well, I think that with that, hopefully what we see is also a reduction in you know, the, what's become the over-reliance on, on metrics and measurement and yeah, back to managing people. Human beings. Uh, and human beings. Human beings. I mean, I don't know. Like I love I love metrics and I love data like more than most and I still like human beings, but it's when you when when you think that there's no human beings involved in the metrics are just like do the talking. Like that's the that's the problem. Same thing with buyers too. But it's a beautiful thing when you start treating your sellers like human beings, guess what? They then turn around and treat their buyers first, like human absolutely. beings too. So it's like a you know, it's like the a, a force multiplier. Yeah. All right, Amy, as always, fantastic to talk. Uh, if people want to connect with you, LinkedIn, the place to do that? Yeah, LinkedIn. And I am uh, just getting a podcast off the ground. It's called Revenue Real. And it's going to be a lot of fun, hotline, calling in. So the whole thing is conversations about uncomfortable conversations in sales. And so we're going, it's like just a big-ass deep practice experience because we're all out of practice, um, myself included. And so we're, I'm looking forward to kind of having a lot of fun. So LinkedIn, cool. absolutely. Anybody interested in coming to play on the hotline? Like also very, very, <laughs> very open to making new friends always. All right. Amy, as always, a pleasure. Thank you, Andy. You thank soon. you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm ever so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Amy Rehovchik, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.